We are in the book of Hebrews. If you want to go to page 1184 in your Red Pew Bibles, or rather 85, excuse me, 1185, we're going to keep working our way through. I hope this has so far been a meaningful time for all of us here in this room. Um, This this next passage is is a little interesting in this sense, right? So the, the, the people who received this original book of Hebrews here, they were under persecution as Christians. Persecution meaning they were being arrested, right? They were suffering harm because they said, I follow Jesus. In America, we don't quite have that problem. In some ways, we're starting to see some of what we profess as Christians kind of being you know, pushed against in our culture, but nobody is shedding their blood, for example, in our country because they believe in Jesus. These Christians, as we'll see later, had not got to that point quite yet, but they were on their path. And this letter was largely written to remind them, not just of who Jesus is, but to give them encouragement to persevere in the midst of such persecution and to look to Jesus who himself was also the one who suffered. Hence, the title of this morning's sermon is um, Through His Suffering. It's really hard to difficult, hard for us to grasp. You know, hey, I follow Jesus. Uh, That means that I might lose my job, my house. I might lose my family. I might lose my freedom and be thrown in jail. I might lose my life. These were realities for these early Christians and also for millions around the world today. That is also their reality. But today we're going to look at how Jesus achieved a victory for us on the cross. His cross is the instrument of his death. It was done for our sins, and his death was kind of the first act in this new chapter that would change and alter the world forever. Even though this victory, his suffering and dying was on our behalf, and even though he declared it is finished, The question is, how do we live out this victory that Christ gained for us? How do we live out the victory that Christ gained for us over sin and death? New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, he had this to say about this very question. He says, one of the dangers of saying too easily that the Messiah died for our sins is to imagine that thereafter, There would be no more dying to do, no more suffering to undergo. The opposite is the case, as Jesus himself had always warned. The victory was indeed won. The revolution was indeed launched through the suffering of Jesus. It is now implemented, put into effective operation by the suffering of his people. Can I let that just swallow in, for, just settle in for a minute here? This morning we're going to read about five things Jesus became through his suffering, or five things he achieved and became through his suffering. All the while, the call for us, as it was for these early Christians who received this, is to learn to live even now in these things as our eyes are cast upon Jesus. The victory has been won, but you and and I need to take up that victory, his cross, and learn to bear it as we follow him. So in saying all of that, let's start here in verse five and read through nine in chapter two. This is the word of the Lord. The first point here is through his sufferings, Jesus was 
glorified. That's a Christian word. We don't hear much glorified. We're going to unpack that here. Verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where somewhere, uh, where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It's the word of the Lord. Verse 5 is interesting. The author says, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. If you want to look into verses right before this and try to figure out what world to come that he's been talking about or the author's been talking about, it's not clearly there. So the question is, you've been talking about the future? If you remember last week, we talked about our salvation, right? Don't drift away from our salvation. But this idea of the future, like where has he been talking about it? The reality is, as most people agree when they try to grasp that verse, uh, the explanation can be this, is that when we are in Christ and we receive the forgiveness of sins and we are given the gift of the Spirit, we are catching a glimpse now of life as it will be when Christ returns. It's like breaking into this world. It's like kind of seeping into our life. That future world is breaking into ours. And the author quotes uh, a psalm, Psalm Eight. And he sees this psalm as kind of like a prophecy of sorts. The psalm speaks of, of, of humankind who is made a little lower than the angels and how they are crowned with glory and honor and everything will be placed under the feet of humanity, under our feet. There's an ancient image of sitting down with authority, your feet resting on top of your enemies. And he says, but we don't really see this right now, do we? Things still happen today that are very much out of our control. As we know, the world still spins out of control. Things happen in our life that you wake up and everything is different because of what just happened the day before, right? This, this is still a future reality that Psalm 8 is pointing to, but the author does something interesting. He says, yeah, but, but now, even though we don't see that in reality for us today, what do we see? We see Jesus, who has been crowned with glory and honor. He's already been crowned with glory and honor. He's already been seated at the right hand of God in authority. Why? Because he suffered death. He experienced death on our behalf. He tasted death on our behalf. And because of it, he's been crowned with glory and honor. John chapter 7 points towards this reality. It says, uh, this is when Jesus was preaching in the temple. It says in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures I've said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, but for as yet the Spirit has not been given, because he had not been yet glorified. 
His death had not taken place. His ascension had not yet taken place back to heaven to sit down at God's right hand. In Acts 1, you know, similarly, as he was right before he left this earth, they said, Lord, is, is it this time that you will restore the kingdom of Israel? You've died. You came back from the dead. Is this the time where all things are made new? And he says, no, it is not for you to know the times or seasons. The Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth in verse 9 is when he has said these things they were looking on he was lifted up in a cloud took him out of their sight followed by the spirit ascending down on Pentecost or descending on Pentecost and so as G- in chapter 1 we saw Jesus died rose again he's seated at the right hand of the father that's his victory and that's his glory because he suffered for us and so we say how has the victory been won um, because right now it doesn't seem like any victory has been won right? Christ has glory and honor. He's seated in authority at the right hand of God. Really? Do we have eternal on the news as of late? Does it appear that he really is ruling right now? Doesn't it appear a little bit chaotic out there? How do we wrestle with this kind of idea of what, you know, theologians call the already but the not yet? This tension, right? How do we, do, how do we wrestle with this? Well, I think the best way to look at this is to look at the 2009 football game between the New England Patriots and the Tennessee Titans. Unless you're some nerd, you probably don't know what I'm talking about. But that game, okay, was the biggest blowout in NFL history. The Patriots, 59 to the Tennessee Titans, zero. Pretty brutal, right? I didn't pull up the game and watch it, but just this is a good analogy. I think it works. So you got to think by the fourth quarter. There's still a game left. But they're like, oh, we need just like 10 touchdowns to win. Right? But guess what? There was still a game to play. There was still time left on the clock. The victory had been won, but there was still time left. And that's how it works with Christ. The victory has been won, but the clock is still ticking. Right? He's not yet returned. There's still a game to play, and we keep pointing people back to that scoreboard to say, look, look what Jesus did in our behalf. The time is ticking, friends. The victory has been won. You guys track with me this morning? That's how we understand this. And as we live, as we live out this, this, this victory that he's achieved on our behalf, as the clock is still ticking, we know that he is still at work among us. We know that his, his glory is, yes, he is seated, right, at the right hand of the Father, and, you, and to define what that glory is, you need to consider now that as Jesus is seated in heaven, um, he is not just like a spirit. He is not just sitting there, you know, he didn't leave his humanity actually behind. When he went back to heaven, friends, he went back in flesh and bones. He's the man, Christ Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so when we think about this glory of Christ, that this, this crown that he's wearing of his glory that he achieved, we, we need to look at that as almost like this is humanity. When we look at the, the resurrected Lord, this is humanity as it should have been. Imperfection. Because sin has just, you know, stained human history, but Christ is the one who lived on this earth as a man, but he was perfect. And as he sits at the right hand of the Father in his glory, we can look at his humanity and say, this is humanity as it should have been. He's the, the, the crowning kind of example of what Adam wasn't. 
he's a perfection of humanity. And when he looks down on us, when he sent his spirit to us, he says, I want to make you complete like myself. I want to begin that work in you, to bring that glory to you. And one day when, when you were raised from the dead, right, as Paul says, we'll be seated with him in glory. We'll be made new with him, just like he is in glory. And the curse of sin will be forever gone. He wants to make us complete. Let's, I want to look at this, this next verse. As we, as we work out this, this idea of, of him, he, he wants to, to, to start flushing out even now as he sits down in victory and authority, flushing out the, the sin and corruption in our own hearts and, and start pouring into um, uh, the clean living waters of his spirit, as Jesus said, the, the, the fountain within us of living waters, right? And as he seeks to do this, friends, he's, he's not doing this as someone who doesn't know what it's like to live this human life. He's not doing it as some person who is, you know, separate from our story. He was born. Listen to this in verse 10. It says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus was perfect, but he was made perfect. That's an interesting thing. Maybe you haven't thought about that before. What do you mean he was made perfect? When he was born sinless, Yes, he was, but when he was, imagine, I was trying to think of a story, you know, like, part of the tension of, you know, in history is when you have rulers of nations who were just, you know, living in the grandest of palaces, having a table to feast on with endless food and drink, wherever they, wherever they want. The endless luxuries of life is just two blocks outside of their palace. There is extreme hunger and starvation and poverty, we know throughout history, this is what causes rebellions, revolutions, and, and great tension and power struggles, right? And people to say, yeah, I'll follow that king or queen who has no idea of what it's like to live the life that we live. Look at them in their palace, right? We, this has created tension all throughout history, and, and Christianity is so, uh, the, the message that there's nothing else like it in this world that says, God, who, who was in heaven uh, enjoying the, 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 the glories of being in heaven, actually was willing to, to leave that behind and to enter into flesh, not in the most grandest of palaces, but born into poverty to an unmarried, betrothed to be married, teenage girl in a tiny little town populated by just a few hundred people who grew up swinging a hammer like anybody else, living in general poverty, working with his hands, and scraping by for a living. He was made perfect through living that life, but never sinning. Living that life, but never succumbing to his human weaknesses. Living that life to the glory of God in its fullness, even throughout his sufferings, that led him to the cross. Suffering exists because sin exists. The world was broken a long time ago through Adam and Eve, and they're giving into the temptation of the serpent to be more like God. But if all the suffering is to be reversed like God, as the prophets of old spoke of, somebody needed to take on those sufferings, but take it on through perfection to experience it and then to overthrow it. And this is why the scriptures says it was fitting for the Messiah to suffer. It was even necessary. Jesus said this. We'll talk about that story a little later on in, verse, in Luke 24 through 26. Verse 26, when he, after he rose from the dead, he says, was it not necessary? Like it had to happen that the Christ 
would suffer and enter into his glory. It had to happen that he would suffer. There's something in this, in his suffering for you and I. We spoke of at the beginning, we're not shedding our blood for the sake of Christ in our country. But there are plenty of people now who experience, all of us to some degree will experience the suffering of living in a broken world. All of us will bear that to some degree. Some of you now are like, I'm bearing it like this morning as I walked in. The sufferings of this world are ever present, ever on my shoulders as I walked in this room. And Jesus, by suffering the way he did on our behalf, you know what he did? This is so key to understanding our wonderful Jesus. He entered into the sufferings in this world. He he willingly said, I am God, but I am going to take on humanity and the sufferings of humanity. I want to live through it. I'm going to experience hunger and thirst and loss and see sick people perish around me and weep because of it. I'm going to enter into that story and experience that on behalf of my people. Then I'm going to take it and I'm going to overthrow it. And the question the New Testament presents for us continually, which is kind of what's happening here in this chapter two, is what would it be like for you and I to enter into one another's sufferings? What would it be like for you and I to enter into the sufferings of our city, of our community, and to bring the light and the power of the good news of Jesus into it? The word perfect that comes up in this verse here, it comes from an ancient Greek idea that's not really like moral perfection, but rather completion. Think of a puzzle that's missing a few pieces, right? But you find those few pieces and ah, it's complete, right? When we enter into, uh, 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 when we experience suffering in this life and the, and the, and the Spirit brings us through it, we, we get to experience the completion that comes from the growth and the experience of, of walking through suffering in our own life. And as a Christian, we get to walk with other people through their suffering as well, just like Jesus did for us. When we bear one another's sufferings, even bear the sufferings of our neighbors, however we can, we shine the light of Christ onto them as a city on a hill. And it will complete this church's story that is ever being written. If there's a few puzzle pieces missing here, we'll continue to complete this church's story as we bring Jesus into our community through our own suffering, willingness to take on the sufferings of those around us our witness will be made complete. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about this morning? If you read history, this is one of the most fascinating things about Christianity. If you read history, this message that we're talking about, like we, maybe you take it kind of for granted. Like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. Like Jesus died for us and we need to, you know, bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6 verse 2 says, like, that makes sense. But throughout human history, like, this was not a message that was present. Like, it was, it wasn't there. Read any history books, right? This, this idea simply wasn't present. But whenever this idea began spreading, when Christianity hit, you know, different neighborhoods and villages and kept spreading throughout the Roman Empire, a bunch of people who were oppressed in slavery and, and, and women who were essentially like concubines beneath their Roman household rulers, like just suffering taking place everywhere. And this message came like, no, like God loves you. You're a human being. You're valued. He, he loves you. He suffered. He knows it's like to suffer. Well, it's like, really? What? And it changed the world, friends. One century at a time, it changed the world. 
It was only through Christianity that we see the alleviation of, of, uh, of, of slavery. The first time ever that any nation outlawed it came from a Christian because of rooted back all the way Jesus entered our suffering. Yes, this is, this is it's an amazing message that we're stewarded here as a church. And so if we move on in the text here, um, uh, it, it says that through his suffering, Jesus became our big brother. Maybe you haven't thought about that before, but that's what this text read says. Um, all this work was done, not him as distant. Yes, he became man, but even more so, like he became a human being, but he even etched himself further into our story. And this, as these verses speak of, he became kind of like our big brother. We joined his family. Verse 11, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And that word, Adelphi, it means brothers or sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. When we refer to God as our father, when we pray, that's good. He's our father. We see Jesus even calling his disciples friends at the Last Supper. We're friends of Christ. That's great. When's the last time you called Jesus your big brother? Right? Big brother Jesus, thank you for being my brother. That's what this text says. Jesus became our big brother because it is he who makes us holy and those he is making holy are humans just like he is and so now we're one big happy family is what this verse is speaking of. We're humans just like Jesus and he's not ashamed. It's amazing. In our broken state, he's not ashamed to look at you and say, that's my bro, that's my sister. They're, they're mine. They're my family. This is Jesus they, 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 he, the author gave a slew of quotations from the Hebrew scriptures as he speaks of um, us being the actual brother of Christ. And friends, the part of the good news is, just like we enter into people's sufferings and we call people to Jesus and call people to join Emmanuel, we're calling people to a new family, to a community, to a new community, to a redeemed community that all of us have one thing in common, and that is we were saved by Jesus and received new life in him. And any are welcome through faith and repentance at his table. Anyone can become the sister or brother of Jesus, and thus my brother or my sister. And that's when it comes along. Those like Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We start bearing each other's burdens because we are a family. This means that the church should not just speak the good news, but this is how we embody, we live out the good news. We, we become the good news as we tell the good news that Jesus is our big brother. I love that. I'll put that like a bumper sticker in my car or something. Jesus is my big brother. A little story to illustrate how all this works out in a family context, right? A few years back, this story surfaced at an um, elementary school in California. It says, uh, last spring, Ms. Mr. Alter's fifth grade class at Lake Elementary School in Oceanside, California included 14 boys who had no hair. Only one, however, had no choice in the matter. Ian O'Gorman, undergoing chemotherapy for lymphoma, faced the prospect of having his hair fall out in clumps. So he had his head shaved. But then 13 of his classmates, what did they do? They also shaved their heads. 
so Ian would not feel out of place. If everybody has his head shaved, sometimes people don't know who's who, said 11-year-old Scott Sibelius in Associated Press story. They don't know who has cancer and who just shaved their head. 10-year-old Kyle Hans- Hanslick started it all. He talked to some other boys, and before long, they all trickled to the barber shop. The last thing we would want is not, the last thing he would want is to not fit in, said Kyle. We just wanted to make him feel better. Ian's father, Sean, choked back tears as he talked about what the boys had done. He said simply, it is hard to put into words, but that verse, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fill the law of Christ. That comes to mind. It's an action, right? It's an action. Continue on, two more points. Through his suffering, Jesus liberated us from the fear of death. Jesus liberated us from the fear of death. Beginning in verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, we're humans, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The word death here is not so much only about physical death. A lot of the New Testament writers and even the Hebrew scriptures, death becomes kind of like a a, a euphemism for just the curse, which very much includes physical death, but just all the parts of this broken world, right? It's kind of wrapped up. It's like a junk drawer word in that sense. All the brokenness and wickedness and sadness, all of it is thrown up in that idea that it's just death that is just reaped in this world. And Jesus himself remains our only hope for any peace or any healing in this world. And and I want to look at just how death was overthrown. I want to pay attention to this. How was death overthrown? How was the power of the devil overthrown? Was it through his strength? Did Jesus, you know, work out and get really massive and call an army together and say, we're going to just take on death here? Did he get a spiritual army of angels and, and say, pull their swords, time to go fight? Rather... It was through taking the very sword of the enemy, which was death, and embracing that on himself and dying, using the very enemy, the sword of the enemy against the enemy, and he overthrew death by his own death. It was death that belonged to the devil, and Jesus overthrew it by dying himself. But the perfect man on behalf of all of us I want to think about that. What does it mean that the one whom we follow overthrew the wickedness in this world through death? There's so many scriptures you could read that talk about how the New Testament early Christians kind of worked this out. Because this, again, was a revolutionary idea. You know, the, the, the powerful of the world, there was no myths that said, like, the greatest among us is the one who died on behalf of us. Maybe in battle there was a glory of death, you know, that kind of thing. But that's not the story of Christ. It was the most, you know, disgusting instrument of death, which was reserved for the most wicked and lowest of society that people are even ashamed to talk about. It was that instrument that our God chose to die on. And that became the message. What what do his followers do with that? How how do we live out this, that through death the devil was overthrown? How how do we wrestle with wickedness in our own life and in this own world and the lives of those around us? And when we're faced with injustice, like how do we work this out? Listen to Paul's words. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. When was the last time you turned on the news and somebody said, you know, bless those who, who, you know, persecute you or disagree with you or blah, 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 or you, you know, like, is that a spirit in our age today? No. This is grace that's being spoken of here. We live in the, we're becoming the most ungracious society. It's insane. Listen to this grace being spoken of here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what Christians are to be known by. I'm not exploring the need for nations to go to war. That's a different sermon. I'm talking about as a church, are we known by these characteristics and qualities? Everybody wants to pin us up against some other group of people who believe something different from us and have our faces on TV arguing and yelling for two minutes and call it a debate, right? We see this kind of spirit around, like the church. Friends, we're to be serving anybody around us and loving anybody around us. Regardless of who this is, we are to be known as people of peace, not repaying evil for evil. That's the Lord's job. Vengeance is mine. Leave the judgment up to him. But let's wash the feet of anyone who walks through this door. Are you guys tracking with this? This is how we are to actually liberate people from the fear, from death, and from the fear of death. That's the message, friends. Our love becomes the very message, the message of the love of Christ. And just as we experience freedom from death and what we experience in this world, our love for those around us through these kind of humble acts will be acts of liberation for them. We're going to end on this. Last thing, Jesus became our high priest. Through his suffering, he became our high priest. Verse 16 through 18, for surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted. We'll hear a lot more about being, him being our high priest later in this book. So we're not going to dwell much on this. The high priest imagery comes from the ancient you know, uh, stories of Israel. You can look in the first five books of, of our Bible to read about it. The high priest cared for the nation, represented the nation before God, performed the necessary sacrifices on their behalf before God. They prayed for the nation, interceded for God's people before God. A good high priest could sympathize with the people as he prayed for them, not as someone greater than them, but as someone who came out from among them. And Jesus was the ultimate high priest for us because he was tempted just like you and I. But he, he really experienced temptation in the way that none of us have in this room because he never gave in to it. Think about that. We've been tempted. You might have been tempted in this room for whatever. Of course, you're not raising your hand. You just got tempted with lying right now right? We've all been tempted. And if I asked, who's given in to it? 
we would see the equal amount of hands be risen up. Jesus' hand wouldn't go up, therefore he experienced the suffering and temptation to its fullness and never gave in to it. And thus when you and I are tempted, he says, I know, I get it, I went through it, but look to me because I suffered through it and I gave you my spirit. I want to help you suffer through this as well. The key through all this, we're going to close with this, is this story that's found in Luke 24. Because suffering is the key piece here, right? Uh, As we end our sermon today, I'm going to share this. There's two men after Jesus rose from the dead. One named Cleopas, and the other we'll call George because his name's not mentioned. So Cleopas and George, okay? In Luke 24, they were two disciples of Jesus. They were walking home after Jesus was killed and some little rumors about him walking around again and being alive. They were confused. They were very confused because they were hoping that he would be this king to come to earth and and bring his kingdom to earth and and achieve this grand victory, but he died, and they were confused. They didn't know what was going on. That's when Jesus came up beside them and talked to them, and they were like, yeah, you know, they didn't recognize who he was. They're like, we don't know what happened. We were following this guy, Jesus, and then he's dead. Like, we don't know. We're confused. And Jesus said to them, verse 25, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophecy, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures concerning the, th- the things concerning himself. Once again, as we close, this was necessary for Christ to suffer. If you heard anything in this sermon, embrace that truth. It was necessary for him to suffer inevitably in our own life. As this church's story continues on, we need to be known as a people who are willing to enter into the sufferings of others. To read Isaiah 53, some 700 years written before, it says of Christ, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as from one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All the we like sheep have gone astray. All We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Let us carry that story forward, friends, as a community.